Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. All right. Hello and welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round 14. We'll be continuing our discussion on disorders of mood. Uh, specifically, we'll go over bipolar and the anxiety disorders. So let's go ahead and get down into it. Um, so we're going to start with bipolar disorder. Um, in 1851, Jean-Pierre Fallright published an article on circular insanity, um, where he noted the connection between mania and depression, and also noted a genetic connection, so that these uh, kinds of disorders tend to run in families. In 1921, Emil Kraepelin separated bipolar out from schizophrenia, which we talked about last week. So what is bipolar? Um, it affects about 5% of the population in the U.S. It affects men and women equally, whereas unipolar depression affects more women. Um, the onset's around 20 years old. Uh, the depressive episodes of bipolar are much like unipolar depression, like we talked about last week. Uh, but you also have manic episodes, so you have very elevated mood. So overactive, over-talkative, very socially intrusive, uh, very distractible, um, impulsive, decreased need for sleep, and reckless behavior. It's sometimes accompanied by delusions and hallucinations. It is recurrent and cycling. Um, usually the cycles are every you know, couple months or so, but sometimes it can go a matter of minutes even. So just to kind of show you what we mean, uh, this is the average person. Um, usually we're generally fairly happy. We kind of have mood fluctuations, but then we might have a little depressed episode if you lose a job or a family pet or something. Uh, but then we tend to kind of bounce back. So we're kind of wavering at, you know, uh, right around baseline. But for those with unipolar depression, um, they also kind of have, you know, kind of normal moods, but also very, very deep depressed episodes. Um, and then for bipolar, they also have these deep depressive episodes, much like the unipolar, but also these real high peaks in mania. Uh, they usually last at least a week, um, can be, you know, three to six months. Uh, they might need hospitalization. As for bipolar one, there's also bipolar two, which is characterized by hypomania. So they had these deep depressions, and also they had these peaks in mania, but not quite as high. So um, hypomania and uh, bipolar two. And then a third kind is called cyclothymia. So it's kind of this darker purple here. So it's very rapid cycling, but the peaks aren't as high or low as in bipolar one or two. Okay, so kind of an overall view of what's happening in the brain in bipolar. Generally speaking, you have decreased prefrontal activation and increased a hyperactivity of subcortical limbic structures. Um, there's thinner cortical gray matter in the frontal, temporal, and parietal regions. Um, and then reduced cortical surface area has been related to a history of psychosis. So the less um, reduced cortical gray matter you have, the more likely you are to have psych psychosis. 
There are deficits in attention, executive function, and emotional processing uh, that are associated with a network that includes the prefrontal area, the anterior cingulate cortices right here, and then limbic structures like the amygdala. So these are the three regions that are mostly affected. Another part of the brain that uh, really plays a role here is the ventral prefrontal cortex. So ventral is underneath the brain, the prefrontal area. So it plays a crucial role in the ability to adapt your behavior to the environmental circumstances. So if you have injury to the ventral prefrontal cortex, and I give you a hypothetical situation, you can say what you're supposed to do. However, if you're in the situation, you cannot regulate your behavior and you're going to make a very impulsive decision. Uh, when you have these impaired uh, region, you'll have very uh, manic behavior. So you can't regulate your behavior. You'll be excessively hedonistic. So you'll have lots of sexual indiscretions, uh, gambling, people spend all their money on just random stuff. Um, the ventral uh, prefrontal cortex, again, integrates motivational relevance of the environment with your internal state. Um, the relationship between, the, the connection between the ventral prefrontal cortex and the amygdala uh, plays a big role in uh, processing facial expressions. So this connection is disrupted and so you're not able to interpret social cues. Um, it, can have, it alters your responses to social situations. Uh, again, dysregulation and emotion and adaptive behavior and social behavior. Uh, there's also a correlation between uh, the vulnerability or number of cycles and smaller ventral prefrontal um, cortex volume. The direction is unclear, so they're not sure if you cycle because you have low, value, low volume or if each cycle reduces the volume. So they're not sure which direction it goes, but there is a, a relationship there. There's also decreased uh, neuron density in other parts of the prefrontal cortex, uh, the dorsal lateral prefrontal, so dorsal on top, lateral to the side, and the orbitofrontal, which is kind of over the eyes. Uh, so you have reduced blood flow and um, activation of these areas as well. In manic cases, um, there is dysregulation of the medial and ventral prefrontal um, areas, uh, especially during risky decision-making. So you, those areas of the brain are not functioning properly, so you're not able to make good choices. Um, there's also blunted activation of the right lateral orbital frontal cortex. So again, that's uh, inhibitory control that is not working well. So that's why you're making all these really bad decisions. Um, and remitted people, so people who have bipolar but they're currently not in a high or low episode, you have deactivation of orbital and medial frontal prefrontal cortex, um, especially when you're doing like, the incongruent Stroop task. So when things you have to kind of think about what you're doing there, it's not working as well. There's also increased uh, subcortical, subcortical limbic activity, both when you're doing emotional tasks, like recognizing emotional faces, and when you're doing non-emotional tasks, like a, a sustained attention task or a serial order task. So just in general, those limbic areas are kind of going crazy and hyperactive. So again, in general, you have underactivity of the prefrontal cortex, which helps with cognitive control, and underactive limbic regions, which are emotional responses. So networks that play a role here, Prefrontal, striatal, thalamic loops. Uh, these loops are really important for modulating uh, emotion and cognitive behavior. Specifically, the striatum and the thalamus play a role in motivation. And that's what's kind of out of whack here. So when you're in a manic phase, you're too motivated and you're doing too many things, you're too driven. 
Um, but when you're in the depression, a depressive episode, you have no motivation. So these are the um, kind of loops that are dysregulated. Uh, medial temporal. So this is the temporal inside, medial is towards the middle. Um, there's loss of prefrontal modulation. So they don't, they don't know if, uh, because the prefrontal cortex is not working, that's why the limbic areas are too active. Or again, the direction's unclear if the limbic regions that are too overactive are kind of too much for the prefrontal cortex to deal with. So if they're not sure which direction it goes. Um, but in general, there is excessive activity of medial temporal structures, specifically the amygdala. So basically kind of overactive emotional brain makes you very vulnerable to kind of mood fluctuations. Um, there is an enlarged amygdala that you see in adults but not adolescents. So they think it's a developmental um, situation where it just kind of keeps on growing and that's why it becomes overactive is one hypothesis. Another region is the subgenual uh, prefrontal cortex. So it's a portion of the anterior cingulate cortex, which is this region which is inferior to the genu. So this is the corpus callosum here. So this is kind of the genu, and this is the region we're talking about here, the subgenual prefrontal cortex. And it integrates cognitive and emotional um, information. And it is smaller on the left for people who have bipolar. And it has decreased blood flow and metabolism when, it's, when you're in the depressed phase. Uh, when you're in the manic phase, it kind of goes up to normal, but it is kind of overall kind of not acting like it should. Also, the corpus callosum, which again is this region here, it has a lot of white uh, matter uh, tracks that connect the two hemispheres. And for people who have bipolar, they had decreased white matter tracks and um, abnormal connections. So what is there isn't what it, how it should be. We also have talked about the cerebellar vermis when we talked about uh, the cerebellum a few weeks ago. Um, it's mostly related to uh, motor control, however, it's also really connected to the limbic regions. So they found that there is a de decreased volume of the vermis, which is the center here, of the cerebellum. And it's related to the number of episodes. But again, the direction's unclear. They don't know if there's reduced volume because of the number of episodes or if the number of episodes caused a decreased volume. Um, also, the ventricle size is increased and it's correlated with the number of manic episodes. So we saw this with schizophrenia this is the bipolar patient, and this is a um, normal control, and the size of the ventricles are larger if you've had more manic episodes. Okay, in the latter half of the 20th century, we, they did lots of experiments on uh, people who had seizure disorders, and they found, again, excessive activity of the medial temporal regions that I just point out to you. But they found some interesting kind of hemispheric um, findings. Basically, the left side, they found uh, those patients tend to be humorless, lots of fear and paranoia. So the left side is associated with uh, depression. But the right side, those patients were had elation, they were very emotional, fluctuating moods, so that side is kind of related to mania. So left side depression, right side mania. There are treatments for um, bipolar, so psychotherapy, ECT, TMS, as we talked about last week, um, obviously neurofeedback. Um, if you're in the depressive phase, then we'll see lots of areas on the left that are dysregulated that we'll want to work with. If you're in the manic phase, you'll see it on the right. Uh, so we'll work on that side. There are medications like antipsychotics, uh, Zyprexa, Respiradol, Seroquel. There are um, anticonvulsants, which actually have been working for bipolar. 
and they work to restore the balance of excitatory glutamate and inhibitory uh, GABA in the amygdala. Um, but you don't want to take this if you're pregnant because it can cause birth defects, spina bifida, cleft lip, developmental problems like intellectual disabilities, um, memory problems, even ASD, or delayed walking and talking. There are also mood stabilizers like Depakote, Lembictal, and Lithium. Um, lithium is kind of what we always associate with bipolar, and it has a very interesting history as well. So lithium was used by the ancient Greeks as bath salts, and it actually calms people who had manic behavior, and it lifted the spirits of the depressed people. So they knew this way back in ancient Greece, and then the information was lost, and we had to rediscover it. In the 19th century, they found that lithium helped dissolve uric acid, so it was used for treatment for gout. There is also a condition called brain gout back in the day that they uh, used it for. Um, in the early 1900s, they actually used it as a replacement for table salts because they knew that table salt caused high blood pressure. That's not good, so let's use lithium salts. Um, but there are lots of side effects like uh, kidney disease and thyroid problems. Also a little thing like death because of lithium toxicity. Um, actually, the, uh, therape the therapeutic dosage of lithium has to be so high and it's so close to toxicity that you have to very closely regulate how much you're taking. And uh, patients who are on lithium have to have blood tests very frequently because of the kidney and thyroid effects. Anyway, in 1949, an Australian named John Cade discovered lithium salts um, kind of calm down crazy um, rodents that he was experimenting with. So he used it as a tranquilizer. Um, even um, in the early 1900s, it was actually used in 7-Up. So, you know, back in the day, cocaine was used at Coca-Cola. Um, lithium was used in 7-Up because they were putting all kinds of crazy stuff in drinks back then. Um, it launched two weeks before the stock market crash in 1929 um, and was uh, used in 7-Up until it was banned in 1948 because, again, like with the table salts, it's not good for you just to be taking it all willy-nilly. And so that's the fun history of lithium. Okay, so now we'll move on to the anxiety disorders. Anxiety, um, frequent symptoms are fear, restlessness, um, heightened responsiveness or awareness, sweating, heart racing, increased blood pressure, avoidance behavior. Um, this is actually very adaptive in healthy people, um, help you to avoid danger. So if there's something coming to get you, you definitely want to be reacting to that. But it becomes psychological when it becomes excessive and persistent. And it's no longer indicative of actual danger. This is the most common kind of disorder, uh, affecting about 10 to 15% of the general population. There are lots of different kinds of anxiety disorders. So generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, specific phobias like arachnophobia, which is the fear of spiders. Um, selective mutism, social anxiety disorder, and separation anxiety. So I'll briefly talk about each of these. Generalized anxiety disorder is when you have unrealistic and excessive worry lasting at least six months. Um, you have lots of motor tension like trembling, muscle, ache, muscle aches, and restlessness. You also have autonomic hyperactivity, shortness of breath, palpitations, increased heart rate, and sweating cold hands. You have increased vigilance and scanning behavior, so you're always feeling on edge, exaggerated startle reflex, and difficulty concentrating. Panic disorder is where you have lots of panic attacks. So panic attacks are these brief, recurrent, spontaneous episodes of terror 
that occur without an identifiable cause. They usually last about 15 to 30 minutes. You have this kind of sense of impending doom, and you have this kind of overactivity of sympathetic um, nervous system. Onset is in the 20s, and they tend to occur over months to years, um, ever, over, um, experienced several times a week. Okay, PTSD has been you're exposed to an event that has threatened uh, death or serious injury, and you, you experience a very intense fear or feeling of helplessness or horror. Um, these patients tend to re-experience their traumatic event. They have intrusive thoughts, nightmares, flashbacks. Um, they have very physiological reactivity to reminders of the event. Um, again, exaggerated startle reflex, hyperarousal, difficulty sleeping, concentrating. Upsets of compulsive disorder is where you have obsessions, which are unwanted recurrent thoughts that cause anxiety, such as the fear of contamination, or needing things to be overly organized or symmetrical. Um, you also have compulsions. These are repetitive behaviors that you feel driven to perform that will help relieve the anxiety. So this is excessive washing, checking, counting, and strict routines. If you've ever seen the show Monk, he is OCD. Selective mutism is usually seen in children, and this is the inability or unwillingness to speak in social situations. Um, it's often comorbid with a social anxiety or separation anxiety. These kids sometimes have sensory processing disorder, so they're overly sensitive to sounds and touch and lights. Um, they often misinterpret social cues, so because they're so kind of overpowering to them, it makes them more anxious about it. They also sometimes actually do have language abnormalities or auditory processing disorder. Social anxiety is when everyday interactions cause significant anxiety and fear. Um, you're kind of self-conscious and your fear of being judged all the time. Um, children with social anxiety tend to manifest in crying and temper tantrums, um, clinging to parents and refusing to speak. See above the selective mutism. Uh, they have fast heart rate, trembling, sweating, upset stomach, um, lightheadedness, dizziness, and muscle tension. And it's uh, often related to low self-esteem and negative self-talk. So it's very sad when kids have this. Separation anxiety, again, is usually seen in children. It's kind of excessive or current distress about being away from home or loved ones. Um, their fear of losing a parent. They have nightmares about separation. Okay, so um, anxiety disorders in general have uh, in common this kind of fear network that includes the amygdala, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the insula. So we talked about the amygdala a lot, these little almond-shaped regions there. Um, it has a role in emotions, specifically fear. Um, it helps determine the salience of stimuli, and um, for people who have anxiety, uh, usually the right side is hyperactive, so it's going crazy you get on the right side. Um, kind of leading you to an inappropriate perception of threat. So everything seems scary. Anterior cingulate cortex, again this region here. Um, it has a role in conflict monitoring and fear learning. Uh, it helps you to detect and appraise social situations, kind of emotional awareness and pain perception. And then the insula, which is tucked away back in there. Uh, we talked about this last week, uh, plays a role in self-awareness, uh, interpersonal experience, sense of agency, so whether you can or can't do something. Um, plays a role in your social experience, kind of norm violations, what is and is not okay. Um, emotional processing, empathy, social decision making. It is dysfunctional, leads to um, 
you're like an anticipating things way too much when this is not going right. Um, hyperactivity, again, at the right side of the insula for the people who have anxiety disorders. Okay, the dorsal prefrontal cortex, again, on the right side, dorsal is top, these regions here. Um, it is associated with increased attentional bias towards threat. So you're always looking for something to come out and get you um, so if it's, you know, um, overactive. And so you have a decreased ability to disengage. So that means you have increased perseverance. Um, so you're perseverating on everything. And so people who have arachnophobia, for, exa for example, might always be looking for spiders. So you're always freaked out about it. The ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, ventral is the bottom, lateral is towards the side. Um, its activation is inverse to social avoidance behavior. So if it's active, then you're not avoiding social experiences. If it's underactive, then you are avoiding social experiences. Um, and then anxiety disorders, it is underactive. So usually its role is to help dampen signals from the amygdala, but because it's underactive, it's not doing that, amygdala is running amok. Um, also, you have greater insula activation, specifically on the right side, um, associated with lower activation of the frontal lobes again. So kind of in general, limbic is going crazy, prefrontal cortex is not doing its job. So in most anxiety disorders, you have an overactivity of things on the right side of the limbic regions, but in PTSD specifically, you have uh, underactivity of frontal regions. So this is PTSD, social anxiety, specific phobia, and fear. So um, all anxiety disorders have a lot of overactive limbic, but in particular, PTSD has very uh, underactive frontal regions. So just kind of give you a kind of outline of what's happening specifically in PTSD. Um, orbital frontal uh, is the region that kind of codes information and controls impulses and regulates mood. It's underactive. The ventral medial PFC plays a role in reward processing to visceral emotions. It is dysregulated and underactive. The anterior ACC, underactive. Amygdala, overactive. Hippocampus, um, again, memories. Uh, studies are kind of disagreeing whether it's over or underactive. Usually depends on the type of trauma that you experienced and what kind of memory test is being employed. The insula, again, is increased, um, usually on the right side. Okay, the precuneus. I think we talked about it within our cells. I don't know if I mentioned it yet in a neural rounds, but it's this region in the parietal lobe. Um, it has a lot to do with your kind of mental imagery of yourself. So episodic memory, self-consciousness, self-awareness, how you write yourself compared to how other people might judge you. Um, it works with the left prefrontal co uh, cortex to recall episodic memory. So it gives kind of source memory. So you know a thing, but then how did you learn that information? So it kind of gives context to your declarative memory. So where was I when I learned this? What was going on? Um, again, kind of an integration of information and kind of in a gestalt. So you walk into a room, how do you read the room? Are people happy? Are they coming out to get you? Are they all judging you? That's all done kind of by the precuneus. It has been implicated in some migraine um, patients, but um, specifically for PTSD, the right precuneus tends to be overactive. So you walk into the room, and then all of a sudden, you're connecting it with a traumatic event, and you know, you're in danger. It's kind of what the brain is doing there. Okay, developmental trauma uh, has some specific kind of brain activity related to different kinds of developmental trauma. 
For sexual abuse, you have reduced volume in the hippocampus, parahippocampal gyrus, caudate nucleus, corpus callosum, and the frontal cortical gray matter. You have a hyperactive right amygdala. You also have reduced volume in the genital representation of the somatosensory cortex. Uh, they think this is an adaptive response. So uh, because you've had so much sexual abuse, you are less sensitive in those regions as kind of an adaptive response um, to what you experienced. The physical abuse, um, these kids have reduced volume in the right medial prefrontal cortex, the right dorsal ACC, and the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. If they had emotional abuse, you have, again, hyperactivity of the amygdala, specifically in verbal abuse. And there's poor connectivity between the right amygdala, the ACC, and the ventral medial PFC. For emotional maltreatment, um, there's reduced functional connectivity between the right amygdala and the bilateral inferior parietal cortex, the precuneus again, orbital frontal cortex, hippocampus, and putamen. Um, also, there's reduced connection between uh, the right dorsal ACC and the precuneus. So you keep on seeing the precuneus come up. There's reduced volume in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex and hypoactivity, low activity in the medial prefrontal cortex. For general neglect, you have reduced limbic connectivity to the prefrontal cortex. Uh, physical neglect, you have dysfunctional connectivity between the amygdala and the left anterior middle uh, temporal gyrus, and then reduced corbal callosum volume. For emotional neglect, specifically witnessing domestic violence, you have lower cortical thickness in occipital regions. So again, seeing um, very disturbing things affects the, you know, the region the brain is uh, responsible for processing visual information, the occipital lobe. Um, for all, all kinds of neglect, you have reduced insular network. So they think this is, an, again, an adaptive response um, so that you don't experience kind of these adverse uh, bodily sensations like hunger and pain as much as you would. So kind of you're adapted to feeling hungry and you're adapted to feeling pain, which is very sad. Um, or emotions. So because they always have very low self-worth, lonely, and they always feel rejected, uh, the insula activity is reduced. So they don't feel that way as much. So they're kind of blunting a feeling, which is very sad. Um, so I always find developmental trauma a very difficult topic to talk, talk about. So whenever I was doing research on this, um, I was very kind of affected by it and I needed a personal palate cleanser. I thought I'd share them with you before we move on in case you are um, as sad about it as I am. So I'll take a deep breath and look at the happy puppies and animals. Okay. This is not minimizing developmental trauma. It's a very real and serious thing. Um, but I just wanted to kind of bring us all back to neutral so that we're not all depressed when we leave. Okay, so just to finish out today, we're gonna to talk about OCD. So OCD, again, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, this is uh, technically classified as an anxiety disorder, but some uh, researchers think it's as much as an impulse control or executive function problem as it is an anxiety problem. So as you can see in the picture, uh, if you have clinical OCD, there's very active frontal region. So it's kind of overly um, trying to control the situation. So there are some dysfunctions and associated brain regions um, that we should talk about. So the air detection, the ACC is dysfunctional. Um, the thresholds for activating um, motor and behavioral patterns is reduced, so that's through basal ganglia. So if you see something, you're like, oh, I want to pick that up. 
you know, if you're in OCD, the threshold for doing that is much lower, so you're more likely to engage in those behaviors. So you have uh, memories of behavioral sequences, PSC and hippocampus that are uh, malfunctioning. Also inhibitory control, the globus pallidus and angular gyrus, uh, decreased um, volumes there. And then the compulsive checking behavior is related to the superior temporal gyrus, this region. Okay, specifically the orbital cortex. So here, down there on the eyes, um, it is, uh, plays a role in reward processing. Um, it evaluates whether a task was performed correctly or incorrectly. And so it's overactive and it leads you to believe that you didn't perform a task correctly. So it kind of makes you think that you had to redo the task because you didn't do it right the first time. Um, OCD patients tend to have reduced gray matter in this region, so inappropriate inhibition and attentional control. The cingulate gyrus, which plays a role in motivation and behavioral responses, it receives input from the limbic system, which is the reward system. So whereas the orbital frontal cortex says you did something wrong, the cingulate gyrus makes you feel anxiety about it. So you did something wrong, but now you have to do something to fix it. And it is overactive in OCD people. Also the caudate nucleus, uh, procedural learning, associated learning, and inhibition, inhibitory control of actions. This helps for a set shifting, and so it helps you to control override compulsive actions. So you did something, you're not satisfied with it, but you're late and you have to go. Well, that's what the caudate nucleus does. It's like, all right, well, that's just how it's meant to be. But if you have OCD, you can't override it. You just have to keep on doing this behavior until you're satisfied. Um, so in OCD people, you're underactive uh, caudate nucleus. Okay, for treatments, again, you have psychotherapy, you have medications, MAOIs, benzodiazepines, um, plays a role in the, on the GABA and the limbic system, especially in the amygdala. And of course, uh, neurofeedback. So um, for all kinds of anxiety, this kind of right side. If you have ruminations, we're thinking kind of more of uh, FZ, so frontal center for that. Okay, and these are all my sources, so. That was bipolar and anxiety disorders. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.